All right. We are ready to rock and roll. So we, we left off around verse uh, 20 uh, with uh, Seleucus uh, IV murdered, with his son Demetrius held hostage in Egypt, and with Seleucus's youngest son Antiochus also murdered. Uncle Antiochus IV is now the sole heir to the throne, being that he's the brother of the former king, and the former king has no more children. So let's go to verse 21, and, and we'll launch from there today. The next, and, and again, this is from the messenger, the next to come to power will be a despicable man who is not in the line for royal succession. He will slip in when least expected and take over the kingdom by flattery. That means he's going to gain a powerful alliance with the king of per Pergamum. And intrigue, meaning he's going to conveniently do away with his nephew, the heir to the throne, by having him murdered. Well, his birth name is Antiochus IV. He took the added name Epiphanes, which means the illustrious one. So it's very interesting. Antiochus IV, Antiochus... By, by the way, when, when we're using uh, the, the numericals, you know, the fourth or the second or the third... Actually, back in those times, they did not use that numerical order. Uh, they used the nicknames. So instead of, uh, for example, uh, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, he would simply be known as Epiphanes. Or uh, uh, Ptolemy V uh, Epiphanes would simply be known as Ptolemy Epiphanes. Uh, the numbers are for our benefit to try to keep track of who's who. Uh, but actually, at that time, they, they didn't use the first or second or third or fourth or fifth uh, number. So birth name is Antiochus. He's the fourth. He took the added name Epiphanes, meaning the illustrious one. He was so contemptible that uh, they gave him another nickname uh, that was a play on the word Epiphanes. Instead of the people, instead of calling him Epiphanes, called him Epimenes, Epimenes, and in the Greek, Epimenes means the madman. <laughs> so that's uh, that was their nickname for him. So Antiochus Epiphanes or Epimenes, uh, the madman, takes the throne. And so we go now to verse 22. Before him, great armies will be swept away, including a covenant prince. Well, the phrase great armies will be swept away most likely refers to Antiochus Epiphanes defeating the Egyptian army in a battle during his reign. The covenant prince <coughs> refers to another palace intrigue. The high priest, excuse me, the high priest of the Jewish temple at the time was Onias III. Onias had a brother named Joshua, who changed his name to Jason, which was a Greek name. And Jason really wanted to do away with the Jewish culture and the Jewish heritage. That's why he dropped his Jewish name and took a, a Hellenistic name. And his idea was to replace the Jewish traditions uh, with the Greek or Hellenistic traditions. 
So uh, Jason goes to King Antiochus Epiphanes of the North, and he asks for a deal. He says, I will pay you lots of money if you will take my brother Onias Third out of his position as high priest and put me in his place. Well, Antiochus, always happy to uh, receive a bribe, especially in great amount, gladly receives the bribe. And he deposes Onias III and makes Onias's brother Jason the high priest in 174 BC. As they say in late night television, but wait, there's more. Two years later in 172 BC, high priest Jason sends one of his underpriests named Millennius to Antiochus Epiphanes with what they call tribute money. Uh, the, the temple was required to pay tribute to the king to keep in his good graces. So <clears throat> being the high priest, Jason sends uh, one of his uh, priests under him, uh, Menelaus, to Antiochus with some tribute money. However, Menelaus has his own plan. And he says, gee, if Jason can bribe the king, maybe I can do that as well. So he takes the money that Jason, the high priest, gave him to give to the king, adds some of his own money to it, and goes to Antiochus Epiphanes and says, I'll give you all this money if you'll make me the high priest and you'll get rid of Jason. Well, once again, Antiochus accepts the bribe accepts the bribe, he double-crosses Jason, and now Millennius uh, becomes the new high priest of the temple. So a lot of intrigue going on here. And uh, in the process, Antiochus Epiphanes will continue to rise in power and influence, although his influence really was under over a very uh, relatively small number of people. And they were probably the recipients of his program of redistribution of wealth. It was kind of like ancient Marxism. Uh, he would take money from the wealthy and redistribute it to friends or his supporters, funneling it uh, down to them. So that small group of people that were loyal to him basically were loyal because he was lining their, their pockets with shekels. Uh, verse 23 really captures the essence of Antiochus Epiphanes. With deceitful promises, he will make various alliances. He will become strong despite having only a handful of followers. So <clears throat> now verse 24 is going to introduce the next set of political and military intrigues. And it's going to need a bit of explanation. So uh, bear with me as, as we, we set up this, this next uh, phase of Daniel 11. Uh, let's talk about the effect first of Antiochus Epiphanes. He ruled from about 175 to 163 BC, about 12 years. In that relatively short time span, he did everything he could to devastate Jewish culture and Jewish theology. 
And it's a testament to <clears throat> how quickly a God-centered culture, which has been there for thousands of years, can essentially turn on a dime or turn on a shekel, as the case may be. If God's people aren't paying attention and they're not consciously, consciously obeying him and are taking his love, grace, and mercy for granted, they can easily be swayed away. And that's what uh, Antiochus Epiphanes did with the Jewish people. But God will not be mocked, and God is also going to honor his covenants. So Antiochus Epiphanes keeps injecting uh, the Greek pagan culture into the Jewish mind and soul of the time. And the Jewish places of worship, the Jewish neighborhoods, and even their homes and families were infected by the Greek or Hellenistic cultures. And one of the biggest wins or accomplishments, I guess you could say, of Antiochus Epiphanes was replacing the high priest Onias III with Onias's devious brother, Jason. We talked about that uh, a minute ago. Jason, uh, originally his name Joshua, giving that up, giving his rich Jewish heritage up to take the Hellenistic or Greek name uh, Jason. And Jason, again, was bent on Hellenizing the Jewish culture and uh, had some influence before the double cross occurred and uh, Millennius uh, was uh, his replacement. So think about <clears throat> Antiochus Epiphanes' legacy. Over 200 years later, the Jews were still struggling with the Greek influence, even with inside the church. Remember this incident in Acts 6? But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. <clears throat> the Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, <laughs> saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. You probably remember that particular dilemma. Well, the root of the problem was this. The native Jews in Israel were bilingual. They spoke Aramaic, which was the language used by the Jews at the time, used by Jesus, but they also spoke Greek. After the Babylonian captivity, during, the Hebrew, the, uh, during which the Hebrew-speaking Jews, remember, lived in Babylon, and they began to pick up this Aramaic language, which was the uh, language of Babylon. So <clears throat> the Jews adopted the Aramaic language, not it's kind of like a distant cousin of Hebrew. Uh, if you can understand and read and write and speak Hebrew, you can pretty much figure out Aramaic. Yes, different languages, but somewhat related. However, the Hellenistic Jews only spoke Greek as uh, well as the Gentiles who converted to Judaism or became followers of Christ. So the issue was not Jews versus Greeks. The issue was Aramaic and Greek-speaking Jews versus the Jews who only spoke Greek. And Greek and Aramaic are about as different as it would be like us trying to pick up Mandarin <laughs> very quickly. They were uh, very, very different uh, languages. 
So you see his influence as he began to try to uh, devastate the Jewish culture. One of the big ways you can devastate a culture is change their language. And we even see attempts at, at that today in, in changing the, the meanings of words. And so he was very successful in that. And they were still suffering from that over 200 uh, years later during uh, the period of Acts of the Apostles. So he not only uh, influenced the culture and the language of the Jews, um, so by the time that the Jesus and the apostles uh, were, were there, why Aramaic was now the standard language, Greek was not related to it. So again, if, if you were only a Greek-speaking Jew, uh, you were hard put to figure out what your fellow Jews who were speaking Aramaic were talking about. So the point being that Antiochus Epiphanes was part of a long process of attempting to Hellenize uh, the Jewish culture. And that issue, uh, again, showed up in, in Acts 6. His negative influence, Antiochus Epiphanes, created a major cultural barrier within Israel, and that lasted a very, very long time. All right, verse 24. Without warning, he will enter the richest areas of the land. Then he will distribute among his followers the plunder and the wealth of the rich, something his predecessors had never done. He will plot the overthrow of strongholds, but this will only last a short while. Good to keep in mind that while Antiochus Epiphanes increased his empire, and during his assaults on Egypt at the southern border of Israel, he would ravage Israel in the process. If you remember the map we looked at a little bit ago, in order for him to go do battle with Egypt, he had to go through Jordan and go through Israel. And every time Antiochus Epiphanes went through Israel, they suffered in, in some way. All right, so... Let's go back to the text, verse 25. Then he will stir up his courage and raise a great army against the king of the south, <coughs> meaning the king of Egypt. The king of the south will go to battle with a mighty army, but to no avail, for there will be plots against him. His own household will cause his downfall. His army will be swept away and many will be killed. Seeking nothing but each other's harm, these kings will plot against each other at the conference table, attempting to deceive each other, but it will make no difference, for the end will come at the appointed time. All right, here's the backstory on verses 25 to 27. We'll pull the curtain back and look at what's happening historically. Antiochus Epiphanes, again the king of the north, makes another assault upon Egyptian forces around 170 BC uh, at the border, basically, of Israel and Egypt, at what you might call the gateway to Egypt if you're approaching it uh, from the north. The battle took place at Pelusium, which is on the northeast side of the Nile Delta, where the Nile flowing north empties into the Mediterranean Ocean. Uh, let me put a map up there <clears throat> to give you a visual. 
okay, you see the map? Okay. Uh, if you see my cursor, the little cross there, that's where Pelusium is. All right. Israel is, is up this way, right? Uh, to the, to the right on your screen, upper right, that would be moving Northeast. That's where Israel is. <clears throat> and so Antiochus Epiphanes would have to come down through Jordan, through, uh, Israel, and Pelusium basically was the gateway to Egypt. That's where, if you were a foreigner coming in, kind of like Ellis Island, so to speak, uh, this is where you would, would come in. <coughs> the green part here that you see, kind of looking like a fan, that is the Nile Delta. Uh, that's the buildup of a very lush area created by the Nile River. And if you remember, the Nile River flows uh, south to north, not north to south. So the Nile River uh, deep in the southern part of Africa flows north through Egypt into the Mediterranean Sea. And that delta is where you see it. By the way, Cairo, Egypt, if you can see that, is, is uh, right here below the, the Nile uh, Delta. And so that gives you a, a little, and there's Memphis, uh, not Tennessee, but uh, Memphis, uh, Egypt. <clears throat> All right, so when we talk about in Alexandria, way over here on the, uh, the western part of the Delta. But remember, Pelusium will be referencing that quite a bit today. I just wanted to give you a visual about, uh, about where that is. So uh, <clears throat> Antiochus Epiphanes takes his army down there. And although Egypt had a, a great army, uh, our Antiochus's army overwhelms the Egyptians and they defeated them there at the gateway in Pelusia. Now, there was uh, some intrigue, and I'm not going to get into all the intrigue that was happening in Egypt among the Ptolemies. The Ptolemies had a lot of internal conflict going on. Uh, I don't know if you still have it, but your, uh, I'll hold that up, your, your chart there of the, <clears throat> of the uh, Ptolemies and the Seleucids. If you still have that, under the bottom, <clears throat> uh, Ptolemy, the sixth philometer, not thermometer, but philometer, from 181 to 145 BC, write another name right under that. Uh, it's his brother. His brother's name is Ptolemy the eighth Physcon, P H Y S C O N. Ptolemy the eighth. Fizcon. Um, he ruled from 145 to 116. He is also known as Ptolemy um, Euergetes the second, because if you go up uh, to the about the middle of the page, you notice there's a Ptolemy the third Euergetes. Well, he is also known as Ptolemy uh, the eighth. Eurgetes the second, okay, and uh, Fiscon. That's kind of an interesting, uh, interesting name in uh, in the language uh, of the time. That meant 
pot belly or bladder. And, and that was because Ptolemy Fiscon, you were GD's the second, was really obese, morbidly obese. And so his nickname was that they made the nickname was Fiscon, uh, pot belly or or bladder, which is uh, kind of an interesting, uh, interesting thing. So uh, Ptolemy the sixth philometer, uh, Ptolemy the seventh Fiscon, although they were brothers, they were sons, by the way, of Ptolemy the fifth Epiphanes, right at right above them. Uh, they did not get along real well. In fact, uh, they, they often plotted against each other. Uh, at times, they were uh, ruling together in sort of a detente type, uh, type situation. Well, <clears throat> the northern king Antiochus Epiphanes seemed to favor Ptolemy Philometer over Ptolemy Fiscon. But the actuality was each ruler was out for himself and the pretend alliances were just for show. Uh, each one really wanted to conquer the other and really didn't like each other very much. They even sat down, as, as scripture says here, at a conference table, uh, professing to be friends, but secretly plotting how to do away with each other. Now, you would think <clears throat> that Antiochus Epiphanes would be happy about his victory there uh, at the border, but it only made him really frustrated because he had intended to go march down there and take over all of Egypt, not just the gateway. So although he won, he was really frustrated that he was unable to take over all of Egypt. So on his way home, he again has to, as he's going south uh, to north, north out of Egypt, he has to pass through Israel. And as he's marching along, he's becoming more and more frustrated. He's more and more ticked off that he's not the ruler of all of Egypt. And so he takes his frustrations out on Jerusalem, and he desecrates the temple. So that uh, makes him feel a little better that he's able to take his rage out on Jerusalem and, and the temple as well. So when the, the scripture here says, the king of the south will go to battle with a mighty army, but to no avail, for there will be plots against him. His own household will cause his downfall. His army will be swept away and many will be killed. The king of the south here is Ptolemy Fiscon, and the plots against him that that verse talks about involve treason. Some of Fiscon's supporters left him and followed Antiochus Epiphanes. And so uh, uh, Ptolemy uh, Fiscon here uh, has, a, has a terrible time there. And uh, again, we're about 170 BC. So verse 27, and I'm going to put in the names here. Seeking nothing but each other's harm, these kings, meaning Antiochus Epiphanes and Ptolemy Philopater, will plot against each other at the conference table, attempting to deceive each other, but it will make no difference for the end will come at the appointed time. All right, <clears throat> so in, again, continuing on, Antioch, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, frustrated over only conquering part of Egypt, 
goes back home, travels north through Israel. And that brings us to verse 28. The king of the north will then return home with great riches. On the way, he will set himself against the people of the holy covenant. That means the Jewish people in Israel doing much damage before continuing his journey. So as Antiochus passes into Israel, he falls upon an interesting discovery. Remember Jason, the brother of the original high priest, uh, Onias III, uh, Jason who bribed the king to get rid of Onias III so he could be high priest, and then his underling uh, bribed the king and they got rid of Jason. Jason, Jason has been mulling this over for quite a while, and he's uh, becoming more and more annoyed over the fact that he was double-crossed. <clears throat> so that never set well with him. He begins uh, to mull over that. So about the time that Antiochus is returning from his victory at the Egyptian border, he finds out that Jason has been up to no good. Jason tried to lead an insurrection against the current government, against Antiochus Epiphanes. So Antiochus, already frustrated over not being able to conquer all of Egypt, lashes out in anger after learning about this insurrection by Jason, and he brings his rage down upon the temple and upon Jerusalem. So he vandalizes and plunders and desecrates the temple in Jerusalem. He, he plunder, plunders its treasures, and he sets his mind against Israel and all of the Mosaic laws and traditions. All right, so let's move on to the next scene now in verse 29, bearing that, that, all that in mind. Then at the appointed time, he will once again invade the south. But this time the result will be different, for warships from a western coastlands will scare him off, and he will withdraw and return home. But he will vent his anger against the people of the Holy Covenant and reward those who forsake the covenant. All right, let's pull back the curtain on this. Let's dig a little deeper. What's happening? All right. It's two years after that initial battle with Egypt in 170 BC, where Antiochus Epiphanes only conquers part of Egypt there at the border. Two years later, Antiochus is thinking, <clears throat> I need to go back and I need to take the rest of Egypt. So he heads back to Egypt with a mind to take the whole nation. This time, however, when he gets to the border, he runs up against what I guess we could call the Roman Navy warships, Roman warships that are based in Cyprus, uh, arrive there. And uh, by the way, <clears throat> Cyprus is controlled by Rome. The leader of the war Roman warships is a man named Popilius Laenus, Popilius Laenus. And he gives Antiochus Epiphanes a letter from the Roman Senate which essentially says you are forbidden to war at any more with Egypt. You're forbidden to have any further aggression against Egypt. <clears throat> well, Antiochus Epiphanes doesn't like that very well. And so he says to Popilius, 
Um, can I think about that for a while? And Popilius, with the uh, Roman Navy behind him, stoops down and he draws a circle in the dirt around Antiochus Epiphanes. And he says to him, give me your answer to obey Rome or not to obey Rome before you step out of that circle. Well, Antiochus Epiphanes is up against it now. Uh, he would be very unwise, even in his maniacal mind, to try to take on Rome. They would crush him in a nanosecond. So he capitulates with this circle that's drawn around him. He capitulates and he agrees, he agrees for the moment anyway, not to attack Egypt anymore. And he picks up and he heads home. Well, what does he have to do, remember, when he heads home? He has to pass again through Israel and Jordan. He's humiliated. He's in a foul mood. And he's headed back through Israel and Jerusalem. All right, verse 30. For warships from western coastlands, that's the Roman warships, will scare him off and he will withdraw and return home. But he will vent his anger against the people of the Holy Covenant, that's the Jews in Jerusalem, and reward those who forsake the covenant. So as he passes through Israel and Jordan, Antiochus begins a, a counterintelligence strategy. He begins recruiting Jews who are willing to side with him to ultimately take on Rome. So look at verse 31. Here's what happens as he's passing through uh, Jerusalem. His army will take over the temple fortress, pollute the sanctuary, put a stop to the daily sacrifices, and set up the sacrilegic object that causes desecration. He will flatter and win over those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will be strong and will resist him. All right, here's the story behind this story. Dig a little more deeper. Antiochus sends one of his generals named Apollonius with an army of 22,000 soldiers into Jerusalem under the guise of a peace mission. It was a ruse. Apollonius and his 22,000 soldiers lay siege to Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. They plunder and they burn the city and they took the women and children all they could as slaves. So again, Antiochus is bent on removing Judaism from the face of the earth. So he starts by forbidding the daily sacrifice at the temple. And then he demands that all copies of the Mosaic law, demands that all the scrolls containing the law of Moses be destroyed. And he bans all forms of worship to the God of Israel, including festivals and the circumcision rites. So what he's doing is eliminating as much as he can of the Jewish heritage and of the Jewish religion as well. And then to kind of twist the knife in the back of Israel theologically, 
Antiochus Epiphanes erects a statue of Zeus on the altar of burnt offerings at the temple. And this is the greatest insult. Not only does he put the statue of Zeus there, but he sacrifices a pig on the altar. And you know, this is an abomination to the Jews. They, right? They, the, the pigs are off limits. And then to add insult to injury, Antiochus demands that all Jews in Israel personally sacrifice a pig on the altar to Zeus on the 25th day of the month. Why the 25th day of the month? Because the 25th day of the month is Antiochus Epiphanes' birthday. So to commemorate his birthday, he forces the Jews to sacrifice pigs on the 25th day of the month on the altar of Zeus. So just, just to illustrate a little bit further the, the manic nature of Antiochus Epiphanes, not only were many Jews killed if they did not worship Zeus, but others were forced to get drunk and participate in orgies to worship the god of wine, Bacchus. If a Jew refused to get drunk, Antiochus' forces would forcibly open up their mouths and they would force wine down their throats until they were drunk and they would force them uh, to participate in these orgies. There's just a terrible, terrible assault upon the people of Israel here. But, but there's a small contingent of Jews that remain faithful to God, and they refuse to worship Zeus or Bacchus, and they refuse to ally uh, with Antiochus, or Antiochus, rather. When I talk about a small contingent of Jews, does that start to ring a bell in your minds? Yeah. Are you seeing that we're nearing a major historical event in Jerusalem? It's all building up right now to the revolt of the Maccabees and the reasons that the Jews celebrate Hanukkah. So we're now connecting, connecting the dots. In the, these prophecies that the messenger is giving Daniel, we're now at the point where we're at the Maccabean revolt. And it's all because of the wickedness and the war against God and his people by Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And remember, he does so many things that are very reminiscent of the Antichrist as we studied him in Revelation. So Epiph uh, Antiochus Epiphanes for us is a foreshadowing of the Antichrist to come. So as we enter this time of the revolt of the Maccabees, watch for a significant time shift coming up, or a time warp, in Daniel 11. From verse 1 to verse 35, we have heard, along with Daniel, the messenger prophesy. For Daniel, verses 1 to 35 are all in the future. For you and me, verses 135, are all things that have already happened. We can look back in history and say, yes, all of that happened. 
the messenger was right on the money. All those prophecies came true. We can validate them by even extra biblical history. However, beginning in verse 36, especially if you're reading ahead, in verse 36, we enter a time warp, kind of like, you know, in, in Star Trek and you hit warp eight and you go into a time warp. Verses 36 to 30, uh, 36 to 45 deal what is to come, those things that we read in Revelation. These are the prophecies that as of today have yet to be fulfilled. And again, the, the line in the sand there, spo- spo- uh, so, uh, so to speak, the delineation is between verses 35, all that history has already happened for us, but 36 to 45, all of that prophecy, all of that history is yet to be fulfilled. So let's complete the history that's already occurred. The Jews who refused to turn against God were mostly persecuted and martyred for their faith. And we see that here in verse 33. Wise leaders will give instruction to many, but these teachers will die by fire and sword, or they will be jailed and robbed. During these persecutions, little help will arrive, and many who join them will not be sincere, and some of the wise will fall victim to persecution. In this way, they will be refined and cleansed and made pure until the time of the end, for the appointed time is still to come. And that brings us to the beginning of the Jewish revolt, the revolt of the Maccabees. And remember, we're looking at a pretty short time here from 167 to 160 BC. Things are speeding up. Now, I'm going to end here because I don't I want to isolate the story of the Maccabees. I don't want to parse it. I don't want to split it up. Um, I want to note now that that Antiochus Epiphanes literally, by the way, literally went insane, and he died in 163 BC in Persia during the Maccabean Revolution. If you want to make a footnote, by the way, if some of this sounds a little bit familiar... This chapter of history involving Antiochus Epiphanes was described in Daniel 8, verses 23 to 25. Daniel 8, 23 to 25. Let me read it very quickly, and you'll see how it relates. At the end of their rule, when their sin was at its height, a fierce king, the master of intrigue, will rise to power. That's Antiochus Epiphanes. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause a shocking amount of destruction and succeed in everything he does. He will destroy powerful leaders and devastate the holy people. He will be a master of deception and will become arrogant. He will destroy many without warning. He will even take on the prince of princes in battle, but he will be broken, though not by human power. That's Antiochus Epiphanes and connects to our passage now in Daniel 11. So next week, I'll go deeper into the Maccabees. I'm going to give you the Maccabean revolution from start to finish, the Jewish revolt, 
the eventual restoring of the temple, and the details of why the Jews celebrate Hanukkah. And that plays into this past history in verses 34 to 35. So now, uh, after that, we're going to enter that time warp and engage in the prophecies yet to come, uh, the end of the times of the Gentiles uh, as uh, Jesus comes back and sets foot again on the Mount of Olives. But I, I think it is so important for us not to fly by and roll by the Maccabean revolution. We're, we're going to stop there next week. We're going to focus totally on that revolution. You'll walk away being more expert than probably anyone else you know on the Maccabean revolution and how that, uh, how that relates to Daniel uh, 11 and how it plays into uh, eventually uh, that little incident in Bethlehem where the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is, is born in a, in a stable. All right. So, wow, that was a, that was a ride today, wasn't it? Uh huh. Wow. Yeah. Any, <laughs> I hate to ask, <laughs> but any questions? <laughs> <laughs> what What is the? Maybe that. Maybe it's more next week. What really brings? I mean, it seems like there's a lot of pilfering and everything going on, and what really brings forth the revolt what what is it because they have been really trounced on by these these bad guys these and yeah um, what could, you know right Epiphanes. what 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 brings on the revolt is antiochus epiphanes and forcing them to sacrifice pigs on the altar of zeus uh, murdering, executing uh, Jews left and right, desecrating the temple, uh, trying to obliterate Jewish theology and Jewish culture. That is directly what brings on the Maccabean revolution. Um, okay. So um, what... That's worth it. <laughs> what's that? What's your... That is definitely a reason to revolt. All of those things added together pretty uh, pretty heavy. Well, yeah, absolutely. And, and as we'll see, um, the, the leader, uh, Maccabeus, uh, they are able to flee uh, Jerusalem itself into the hills. And they're going to, so, so they're, they're not there within arm's reach of, of these murderous agents of Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, and so there, we'll trace and, and we'll look at the history of the revolt, uh, but it's all caused, Lori, and that was a great question, it's caused specifically because of what we just read about in, uh, in Daniel uh, this last part of Daniel ending in verse uh, um, uh, 35, uh, it's due to the, the terrible, uh, maniacal siege of, of Antiochus Epiphanes and trying to obliterate the Jewish theology and the Jewish culture. That's what starts the revolt. 
Um, ju just a warning. Do not confuse this with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. That was by well, the Romans. Is that Nero? You're, you're talking Nero, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, Titus, not the Titus of the Bible, but General Titus. That's a whole different battle. Uh, that, that happens in 70 AD, uh, you know, some 35, well, within probably about 35 years after uh, Jesus ascended uh, back into heaven. That's the fall of Jerusalem, the final fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD at the hands of the Romans. What we're talking about here is the siege of Jerusalem by Antiochus Epiphanes. And again, this is uh, in the in in uh, uh, the 100s uh, BC, you know, some 200 years before uh, before Christ. So. Um, Whatever you know about the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, put that aside, erase that right now. We're going to deal specifically with the siege of Jerusalem here uh, by Antiochus uh, uh, Epiphanes. And again, we're, we're talking now uh, 167 to about 160 uh, BC. That's that that's when the revolution ends in 160 uh antiochus epiphanes uh dies in 163 during the maccabean revolution uh literally goes out of his mind not that he wasn't before but uh he dies in persia and uh, and so that ends but the problem is that his influence uh carries on so anyway that was a long that's answer well. to your very short question <laughs> Well, Pastor Mike, um, I know uh, last week or week before you mentioned uh, this isn't the Antichrist, but it's the foreshadow of the Antichrist. And the more and more you read it uh, and you teach, you can see that, that it's the picture. Yeah. And I was thinking the Maccabees are going to bring a revolution where Jesus will bring the final revolution. Good. Yeah, that, that, that's a that's a good good equation yeah. right there. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, um, and I am really anxious to hear about the Mac Maccabees because I've never heard of them before until you mentioned them in the past. Yeah. But uh, so I'm anxious to. Oh, see now that's interesting, Anne. I'm the reverse. I've heard about them all my life. Oh, really? I didn't know anything about them. And I thought it was just kind of, I, I didn't even know if it was true or not. Because I knew that the Catholic Bibles have the Maccabees. Oh. Yeah. I knew that from my Catholic friends. Oh. And so I, but I thought, well, if our Bible doesn't have it, then it must be some, you know, I don't know. Anyway, well, that, made I, would up have, thing. I would have thought the same thing. <laughs> yeah. So I've always thought it was just whatever out there. Yeah. So I, you, I can't wait to hear about it. Yeah. But I, because of that. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of that history 
is uh, derived from the apocryphal books, but also verified by uh, extra biblical historians. You know, so it, it's like, you know, and, and the problem here very quickly is uh, a lot of fundamental Christians say, wait a minute, the Apocrypha, that's all false. And so we, we don't want to study that. N -n no. Yeah, some of the apocryphal books are false, but there's also history in, in the Maccabean uh, parts of the, of the Apocrypha. That's history. And it's yes. verified, it, it, you know, it'd be like um, us saying, well, we don't believe what's in the Encyclopedia Britannica because it's not in the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, no. <laughs> you know, or, or, or anyway. Uh, so, yeah, so, so when, when we pick up on the history of the Maccabees uh, next week, some of that history is from the apocryphal books about the Maccabees. Uh, other are from historians, either of the time or of later times, who who uh, were able to uh, record eyewitness accounts and or put together written accounts that that were uh, that were made at the time. So, it to me, it is vitally important that we Christians understand the Maccabean Revolution. Because Hanukkah is something that we ought to really rejoice in for our Jewish brothers Jewish. and sisters. It, it, it's an incredible miracle that happened. And so we, it, we will walk away from this with a, an understanding of Hanukkah like you may have never had before. And uh, I think that's, that's going to be a good thing. Well, I also, you've said several things here. Extra Extra biblical historians. Is that what you said? Mm -hmm. I have never heard of that before. <laughs> yeah. E extra biblical <coughs> simply meaning um, outside of the Bible. Yeah. 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 I love it. Yeah. And, <laughs> well, it's interesting. And, go on. You go on. No, no. I, I was just going to say that it's valuable. I mean, when you look at the writings of Josephus and yeah, uh, yes. Tertullian and, and so many others, uh, really important that we become familiar with that because it backs up, it verifies our scripture. Remember, there's, um, aside from the prophecies in Daniel here, as far as uh, contemporary history in the Bible goes, remember, we're looking at a uh, about a 400 year, uh, period of silence between, uh, you know, the end of Malachi, so to speak, and the, in the beginning of Matthew. Um, and so what we're on here is we are on the cusp of the, the, the ending of the old Testament history and yeah. the beginning of the New Testament history. Yeah, so yeah. it's kind of, a, it, it's an exciting thing to, uh, to look at. So anyway, what, yeah. what else did you have, Anne? Well, the other thing was, um, I think it was interesting. You talked about, uh, I know I had a couple of friends that says, well, you show me where that is in the Bible. And when I go to find it, it's not black and white. Right you know, something the other. 
And if it's not black and white in the Bible, they just say, well, that's not true. So that was, that was helpful for you to say, you know, uh, I, I mean, there's some things just, you know, <laughs> it's not in the Bible, but you know, you don't do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. you know, that's always a convenient excuse yeah. for things. Yeah. Well, yeah. and also I think uh, I have found uh, also the fact that uh, you have to do this. You have to dig in there and find out what it's saying because uh, you've told us a lot. You put so, I mean, you put so many more words in Daniel, you know, because you've explained <laughs> everything. I'm, I'm not saying too many. I'm just saying, you know, that right. you've dug in. And so if you don't uh, dig in, either you dig in or listen to somebody else that's dug in, you don't get the full picture. Yeah. Exactly. And right. I, I, it's important to have the full picture. I, well, well, and that's, he, you know, you look at Lee Strobel and... He, um, yeah. He came to faith. I mean, he was a skeptical journalist. Mm -hmm. He came to faith because he did all this extra biblical research. Yeah. He found out, wow, all that did happen. <laughs> you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh. Well, I like that. I like that term. There was also a lot of stuff going on in the world that isn't contained in the Bible. The right. Chinese, yeah. Asia were all going on yeah. when the Bible was, when the story of the Bible was written. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of, um, you know, light. I mean, a lot of history. Um, the Bible just, um, uh, you know, documents some history, but not, all of yeah yeah going right. on. yeah you know we we aren't looking at this as the full historical bible of the i mean book yeah well and it's it says what in john it says you know this this i have a lot more i could tell you but <laughs> Exactly. I was just going to say that. that big yes. Book. <laughs> right. Yeah. John made that point. You know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That there were many more things. Yeah. That, that and he what he said recorded. was, "There's many more things. Just wait, Pastor Mike will come along and tell you about them." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and. Uh, and stop the recording because whoever's listening is probably their heads are probably spinning by now. And uh, bless you for listening. <laughs>